Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Interviews with actors, comedians, athletes, neuroscientists, authors, anybody I find interesting. We talk about their careers, successes, failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I think I asked some pretty darn good questions, but don't take it from me. Just ask star of screen and stage, Nick Offerman. It's a great question. It's, a, it's a, an astute question. Um, gosh, that's a good question. That's a great question. Gosh, uh, that, that's a great question. That is a great question. This has been a litany of great questions. I was right <laughs> to, agree, to agree to this. Hello, my name is Nick Offerman, a.k.a. Mr. Megan Mullally. And my dilemma is I've recently been diagnosed with plantar fasciitis, which is preventing me from running my four miles a day that I like to run, uh, which means I've put on about 12 pounds, (laughs) which it was fun in a way while it was happening, but now I'm uh, I'm upset (laughs) with the outcome. It seems near impossible to say, considering just how decrepit this old sack of bones is post-heptathlon career, but somehow I have managed to avoid getting plantar fasciitis. And of course, now that I've said that, it's probably on the way. But for now, I've enlisted the help of someone who is all too familiar with it. My older sister, Katie, a fantastic former college track and tennis athlete who now works in the admirable field of ending homelessness and trying to help the unhoused here in Chicago. And unfortunately, she has battled plantar fasciitis. Take it away, Katie. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for asking your older, wiser sister for advice. But to be honest, I'm not quite sure you're asking the right person as my plantar fasciitis comes back every time I run a half marathon or really any time I walk barefoot. Regardless, here's a list of everything I have tried to combat my plantar fasciitis. Icing my foot, rolling a golf ball under my foot, using my fingers to massage the tissue, wearing a night splint to keep my foot in a flex position, orthotics in support of shoes, and physical therapy, which included cupping and dry needling. I would really not suggest getting a cortisone shot as my doctor jammed the needle into my foot and moved it around and around to break up tissue. And frankly, it hurt more than childbirth. The one thing that's been super helpful recently is stretching. Tightness in your calf muscle or hamstrings exacerbates plantar fasciitis. So the more yoga or stretching you can incorporate into your daily routine, the better. In the immortal words of Ron Swanson, I'd wish you the best of luck, but I believe luck is a concept created by the weak to explain their failures. Hope this was helpful, Nick. That's what she said. (laughs) Ooh, boy, folks, this is a big one. One of my favorites, actually. This week's episode is with one of the celebrities that I admire most. Uh, Not just because his work has brought me so much joy and laughter and so much peace and so many good vibes, especially when I needed the most uh, midway through the pandemic, uh, but also because he seems like a genuinely wonderful person and he has a great grasp on what matters and honesty about the conflicts of life from embracing creature comforts to natural wonders, um, an impeccable and impressive vocabulary, which is on display in his many books. And perhaps the greatest laugh of all time. Sorry, Mina, but I think he's gotcha. Yes, this week my guest is none other than the great Nick Offerman. Actor, writer, comedian, producer, carpenter. His work includes portraying the iconic Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation, 
co-hosting one of my favorites, Making It with Amy Poehler, and countless movies and television from The West Wing to Will and Grace, 24 to Gilmore Girls, The Simpsons, Fargo, Colin in Black and White, and now the Amazon Prime TV series A League of Their Own. His substack, which you should absolutely subscribe to, is called Donkey Thoughts. It's at nickofferman.substack.com. His woodworking shop, which you should definitely check out, can be found at offermanwoodshop.com. And he has many books, all of which are an absolute delight to read, while also encouraging thinking about problems big and small, how to be good people, how to be good stewards of our natural world, uh, and more. So a big thank you to Mike Schur, friend of the show, for hooking up this meeting of the minds. Uh, Nick and I talk about acting, his lovely wife, Megan Mullally, his woodworking, book writing, glacier hiking, farm tending, meat eating, masculinity defining existence, and more. So you guys are going to love Nick Offerman. That's what she said. (laughs) So I think this may be the podcast for which I am most concerned about getting to all the things that I can't wait to discuss with you. So we're going to power through and see what we can get to. And I'm going to start with the way people know you best, but save plenty of time for the woodworking and the writing and your thoughts on agriculture and the planet, which are fascinating. But we have to start at the beginning because you are an Illinois boy, Manuka, Illinois, about 45 minutes outside Chicago, extremely small. I believe less than a thousand people when you were a kid in terms of population. Uh, And you often write and speak about how Manuka influenced you. And I wonder if you could share the things that endure. Sure. Um, I I think, uh, to to be fair, just in case somebody there listens, uh, it was probably a couple thousand population growing up and it's ballooned to, (laughs) I I think, 12,000. Wow. Mm. So it's it's become a a bedroom community of which my dad is now the mayor. Amazing. Um, And his his dad was the mayor uh, for a a while in the 80s. and, and so I have a huge family there, uh, sneaking up on 40 people in the family. And everyone lives within about an eight mile radius, except Megan and myself. Uh, and so having such a, a tight knit family and really across the board made up of farmers, school teachers, nurses, paramedics, uh, three librarians in the family <laughs> and a craft brewer. My little brother is the king of the family. Um, for that reason. And uh, the the set of values that I was raised with is really what endures. That's what sticks with me. Um, a sense of, of being a good neighbor, uh, being a member of a community, regardless of people's religion or, or political beliefs or uh, preference uh, in, in meat or condiments. We all manage to get along and help each other bale hay and uh, and be good neighbors, uh, despite our humanity. Also noteworthy, a healthy and very smart hatred of St. Louis Cardinals fans, which I share. So um, by, by and large, although it's interesting, we I've, I've in hindsight, I mean, I grew up in a family of, of Cubs fans, but we are uh, technically geographically south south <laughs> southwest of the city so at some point people took umbrage and said you are, are to the south you should be white, white Sox fans and i said well nobody ever put that those choices in front of me <laughs> but i think we can all agree that the the cardinals are absolute reprobates yeah and unfortunately if you go 
further south than Illinois, some are traitors to their own state and root instead for the Cardinals. They choose neither yeah. the Sox or Cubs, which is deeply disturbing. Um, so like many people who grow up outside of Chicago or in Illinois, you end up at U of I and then you head to Chicago. You're working in theater, all the good ones, Steppenwolf and Goodman. And I wonder at that point, when you leave Manuka and you're in the big city of Chicago, you actually co-found your own theater. What was the biggest dream you imagined, if you can recall at that age, how big you thought it could be or what would be the biggest accomplishment? Well, uh, I, I was working a lot at, at different sized theaters, little storefront theaters, which Chicago is far and away the best city in the country uh, for for cutting your teeth in, in theater. Um, because there's just a lot of, of young, hungry uh, companies giving it a go. Uh, but I also had the good fortune to work at some bigger theaters in smaller roles. And, and my favorite was working, I did, I think, five shows at the Steppenwolf Theater, which was kind of the pinnacle. That was the, the, uh, that was the free solo of, uh, of <laughs> Chicago Equity Theaters. And so getting to work there was incredible and work alongside, you know, the hot shots that ran it, Gary Sinise and John Malkovich and... Laurie Metcalf and, and and all the others and uh, and and what came to what came to sort of stare me in the face was the fact that I was probably never going to get to play a leading role because the company I was in my mid to late twenties and and these guys that were like in their late thirties and early forties started the company and so any role like Stanley Kowalski for example. I, I don't I have, I have no chance of getting it because Gary Sinise is going to play it and things like that. And so I, I think probably there and then just getting like a substantial part at one of these big theaters, Steppenwolf or the Goodman would have been my Mount, my Mount Everest. Yeah. Um, but you don't stick around long enough for that to take place because you follow a gal. Well, your intention is to follow a gal to Los Angeles. Uh, she disappears briefly, but you follow through on your plans to go out west, which is where you meet your wife, Megan, on um, the Berlin Circle, a play in which you're both cast. You also were building the set for it. So you were often wearing gold overalls that you used as a notepad because you couldn't afford paper. You were living in a friend's basement and per Megan, you were cultivating a rich forest ecosystem on your back. And so I suppose the people want to know how you scored such a fantastically talented and bodacious lady, considering all those things. Uh, it's, it's a great question uh, that we still ask frequently <laughs> to this day. Um, when when I look at her, when I wake up in the morning and look at her, <laughs> I say, <laughs> And then I, you know, we own a mirror or in the house, and so I'm the, the the math still doesn't check out. Um, what she she always describes those overalls as golden, but that's a. It's I feel like I should I should amend that a little bit because they're simply they were Carhartts Car over Carhartts. overalls. That's what I thought I sort of wondered if she wasn't familiar. And yeah, I mean, she is now because it's become like an actual fashion brand. But at the time, it was it was just workwear, um, and and it wasn't that I couldn't afford paper. Working in the in scenery, you're in theater lighting. You're often up on a ladder, uh, or in a circumstance, um, and this is pre smartphone, uh, and even pre cell phone. I think I, this was during my pager days, and so. 
when you work in scenery, one of the things you always keep on your person is a Sharpie. And so if somebody would yell out, we need uh, 11 two by fours and a, and a bucket of inch and five eighths screws, you could just write that down on the leg of your overalls <laughs> with your Sharpie. It, it made a lot of sense at the time and it still yeah. does. Um, uh, the book, but, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told is so fantastic learning about how you wooed each other. And uh, it's 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 very romantic, actually, all of it. Well, thank you. We are, I think we are uh, admittedly pretty sappy. We're, we feel very lucky that we found each other and that we managed to get along as two, you know, kids in, in the clowning industry. Um, it's pretty unheard of to, we've been together for about 22 years now. And in fact, we were just in London and we went back to the footbridge in Regent's Park where I proposed to Megan and uh, I gave her a nice watch uh, as the 20th anniversary of my proposal. And she said yes again. So I'm, I'm, I must uh, I must have a hell of a personality. <laughs> <laughs> must be. Well, you're very understated in, uh, in your relationship. Uh, you've said in the past, we do things well on our own, but when we combine our powers, we can save the planet. So it's nice that you're humble in, in, in all things together, which is good. Um, you do work very well together. You've been in a lot of stuff together, but it's interesting how you talk about your path, your paths sort of mirroring each other. She got Will and Grace at 39. You got Parks and Rec at 39. So she had been through this massive fame and something blowing up several years before you. And I wonder how much you actually took from her journey through that to inform how you wanted to deal with but it becomes real big, like it can't be for you. Uh, it's a, it's a, an astute question. Um, from the get-go, we've had a, a real student-teacher dynamic to our relationship. And uh, I've always been felt nothing but immense gratitude that, you know, that like my own personal Obi-Wan Kenobi also <laughs> wanted to make love to me. Um, and so I, I, I was so ignorant. I mean, she was so, so far ahead of me in so many ways professionally. Um, and so just by being next to her as she handled all of these challenges, like, uh, you know, becoming massively popular, you know, just going on talk shows and like de dealing with red carpets and press and, you know, all, all of the uh, sort of um, pitfalls of when things go well. Um, watching the way she handled all these things uh, was just a wonderful education. And so, you know, years before I had any suspicion that such a, a fortune might befall me, I was definitely just taking on board uh, her her maturity and her grace. And then later I said, holy cow, I, I never <laughs> would have imagined that uh, I, this toolbox that she packed for me would actually come into use. Parks and Rec, Ron Swanson, one of the greatest, most iconic characters of all time. And I wonder first how often people who meet you want you to just be Ron Swanson. And also by the end of that 125 episodes, how much of you actually did end up in Ron? Uh, well, I mean, for the first question, I, um, I don't know. I, 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 I've dealt with uh, a lot of different uh, variations of fandom from people but i think i think it's pretty clear pretty quickly to people that you know that a, a, 
a comedy character from television is very much a sketch. Uh, you know, I, I think when people meet me, they're depending on the context, they will be tickled if I happen to be eating bacon. Yes. Or if I, if I like say something sternly to them, they they laugh and 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 run and hide. And um, <laughs> but but by and large, they because I tour a lot as a humorist, or I do I do book tours and stuff. So I I meet a lot of my audience, and I get to actually countenance them and say hello. It's like it's, it's nice to meet you. I think pretty quickly they understand that I'm a human being, <laughs> and that it's you know this is actually real life, and and that I'm not you know, that I don't, that I don't, uh, maintain the superhuman characteristics that Ron has, you know, I, I, that drinking as much scotch as Ron does would, would kill, uh, any mortal. Um, and, uh, and by the end of 125 episodes, I, I mean, it, I think it's true of any brilliant TV comedy character. Um, once, once the, the writers, uh, to whom, a large percentage of the credit, uh, in my case, has to go to the brilliant writers. You know, I show up with this uh, this this bushel of attributes, and it, it's not it's not my brain that says how can we craft this, how can we use our alchemy to make this really funny. Uh, the the you know the things that people love about Ron Swanson, I am very grateful to the brains that came up with it, uh, Mike Schur and, and Dan Gore and their cadre of brilliant writers. Um, and so, uh, you know, attributes of my, of, of my personality ended up in Ron, just like Aziz and Amy and Rashida and Aubrey, parts of us ended up, you know, they, they said, Oh, like Aubrey is a great example. Her, her, her dour, mischief, uh, her, her like black magic sense of humor, they said, okay, let's take this and get, make her an intern with a bad attitude. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's easy to see when you, when you break it down and, and their ability to sit, to come, they came to my wood shop and said, do you mind if we make Ron a woodworker? We think this is hilarious. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I think I, I think yeah. I can somehow turn that into a compliment. Uh, yeah, let's make him a woodworker. Um, I'm sure you've heard this a lot, but um, Parks and Rec was a massive part of getting me through COVID as as was making it. I hadn't seen it before and I became friendly with Mike Schur and I felt embarrassed to only have witnessed some of his greatness and uh between that and making it, you and Amy uh, kept some spirits very high during some tough times. And I've, I consider myself a personal publicist for making it. I haven't gotten any checks, but I have spent most of my free time trying to lure people to the, to the goodness of it. Uh, and I thank you for that. Um, let's talk about your upcoming project. Oh, a thank a thank of, you for your, thank you for your service. <laughs> um, a league of their own, uh, is a movie that I will cry at every time. And now it is a TV show that's coming out August 12th on Amazon Prime Video. You are Casey Dove Porter, ex-Cubs pitcher, who is going to coach the Rockford Peaches. These are new characters. This is not a remake of the film. So you are not Tom Hanks, but the comparisons will be made. So how did you make this your own? Well, thankfully, uh, I didn't even have to think about it because the the uh the the source material 
is the same. You know, the it, it, the film and the TV series. Uh, it, it's like making two different things about the the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- nobody's gonna gonna think, oh, Nick must be playing Patrick Swayze's part. Um, <laughs> and so I didn't have to really put much thought into it. We uh, we are friends with Abby Jacobson, uh, and she sent us the pilot at some point um, b- because we're friends, and we watched it and said, holy cow, we just thought it was so fantastic. And she immediately, she and Will and, and the rest of the gang, immediately just make it their own and and uh, and uh, paint it with a contemporary sensibility that comes through for me most powerfully with Abby's incredibly charismatic naturalism and her, her sloppy sense of humor, you know, the way... <laughs> The way she fumbles her way into making us love her, uh, just uh, I, I was like, well, this—I mean, within five minutes of this pilot, nobody's gonna remember the the film. They're just two entirely different creatures. Um, and so then, when when she wanted me to come do this, I, you know, just as a baseball fan, and and especially uh, I just turned fifty-two, you know. I'm sort of beyond the age when, like, I'm going to, like, maybe I'll get to play a manager or, <laughs> or you know, I'll, I'll get to play, like, old Joey Votto or you right, know, something. Right. Well, you were uh, Colin Kaepernick's dad, so I think that settled it. That yeah. You will yes. not be playing the star athlete right now. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's going to take a, 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 a great, it's going to take some sort of Pixar imagination <laughs> <laughs> to turn me into that. But so to get to like come out and and play even a little bit of baseball and like be a part of this, um, I'm also of course a huge Darcy Carden fan. And then when I met the rest, uh, and I, we, I know Kate Berlant as well, who's one of the funniest people working today. And then when I met the rest of the of the the team, I just, I mean, I, I was grinning from ear to ear the entire time because. My dad was the was the star of our town uh, <laughs> as a baseball player and a basketball player. Our little far, farm town had a very Hoosiers feeling to it growing up, and so and my dad was a great coach. I have three siblings. He taught us all to play sports, and so any circumstance like that, I mean, whether I'm playing baseball or hammering a nail or splitting firewood, all of which for some reason I, I tend to be called upon to do quite a bit on camera. I just immediately, or, or park a vehicle. I just immediately think of my dad yeah. and like, Oh boy, I, I you know, I got to make sure I do this right. Cause I don't want to hear about it from, from Rick. Um, and so, I mean, there was, there wasn't a lot of thought given to anything other than, trying to serve, you know, this role and this narrative as best I can. And it sounds like a really cool um, progression of the story that tackles more interestingly race and sexuality and things beyond the original movie, which I'm super, super excited for. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Splendid. Splendid. What a wonderful word. Uh, 1620s, meaning marked by grandeur probably a shortening of earlier splendidious from the early 15th century, which sidebar, why the hell did we stop saying splendidious 
What a tremendous word. As much as I want to say splendid more often, I need to start saying splendidious. Anyway, they evolved from Latin splendidus, bright, shining, glittering, sumptuous, gorgeous, grand, illustrious, distinguished, noble, showy, fine. Man, it feels like when we use splendid now, it's a bit less dramatic, yeah? (laughs) What a splendid day. Not, my lord, the Grand Canyon is splendid. Either way, splendid, splendidious, great word. Got to use them more often. Speaking of great words. You gonna learn today. The word of the week is roborative. This is actually a word that emerges in Nick's latest book while discussing a meal that he ate at the British farm of the Rebanks family. And he writes, Anne invited us back inside for a cup of tea and a bowl of roborative roasted red pepper and tomato soup fueled with a low fire of spice. Roborative is an excellent word that I picked up in Patrick O'Brien's seafaring novels about Captain Jack Aubrey and his good friend Stephen Maturin, usually employed to describe strong coffee on board whichever of Her Majesty's ships they happened to be presently employed upon. I was later dismayed, however, to see that the word is not listed in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary when I wanted to substantiate its addition to my arsenal of good adjectives. I did subsequently find it on Wiktionary.org, where it is defined as giving strength, invigorating. So I'm going to toss it around with impunity, and I hope you will as well, so that we can one day see it recognized as legitimate by those snobs over at Merriam-Webster. And he's right. I looked it up. Merriam-Webster does not have reportive, but it does acknowledge the obsolete word roborate, meaning ratify, corroborate, or strengthen, from the Middle English roboratin and from Latin roboratus. Roborative, roborate, either way, a fine word. So, in a sentence, from Nick Offerman's Twitter, I went to a cool spa and had a roborative facial, except the facial was meat and the spa was salt lick barbecue. Now let's get back to the interview. You mentioned splitting wood and hammering nails. You are often called upon to portray masculinity. And in fact, I was reading the uh, tag or I guess caption promotion for one of your books, Paddle Your Own Canoe, One Man's Fundamentals for Delicious Living. And it said, growing a perfect mustache, grilling red meat, wooing a woman, who better to deliver this tutelage than the always charming, always manly Nick Offerman? Now, that is all very true, but I, I'm curious because I often find the qualities and activities attributed to being a real man to be limiting and stereotypical and sometimes even deeply off-putting. <laughs> but you managed to embody all of that while also preaching kindness and gentleness and empathy and goodness. And I wonder if you feel you've always had that balance or if you remember an age at which you felt self-assured and confident enough to not need to prove your manliness in ways beyond things that were authentic. Um, gosh, that's a good question. I, I, I would start by saying it came as a surprise, uh, and I guess once once uh, Ron Swanson and, and Parks and Recreation sort of uh, found its way into the public eye and people began to pay any attention to me, it came as a surprise that I was accused of masculinity. Um, <laughs> just because, uh, it, I, I don't know, it hadn't been my thing. Uh, I, I mean, I had been... Uh, you know, uh, I had been playing the roles I'd been playing in theater and and film and TV. And I had been a carpenter and like a a competent, uh, strong athletic person, but 
it just never it never came up as part of my identity. People didn't introduce me as like this son of a bitch is so masculine. Uh, <laughs> this theater geek is, a, is yeah, the manliest yeah. man you'll ever meet. Like I made puppets uh, and <laughs> and I took dance classes and I and so so it, it never occurred. I never had to think about it. Um, I guess it was just part of my of my recipe. Then when things like this started happening, where I began to be sort of sold or advertised <laughs> as one manly hunk of beef, uh, <laughs> I was like, okay, hang on now. <laughs> be because because uh, so elements of, of more toxic masculinity or traditional or misogynist or, or stereotypical, like old fashioned swaggering John Wayne masculinity, they would begin to sort of lay claim to me sometimes or or also weird kind of uh like gun nuts uh, would would want to claim me or ron uh li libertarians who didn't understand that the show was a comedy uh to this day are, are just so heartbroken i mean the the look on a libertarian's face when he realizes that like i want them to have health care the, the, <laughs> They, they uh, immediately contemplate suicide, which is <laughs> literally counterintuitive. But um, so, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a human being. And one of the things that I try to always promote is nuance. Each one of us is, is very different. I, I may have this masculinity, but I've often said I have two uh, beautiful sisters who could beat the crap out of me. Um, and, and and like all the things that people think are manly about me, I, I want to uh, erode the need we have to genderize yeah. these things. At my wood shop, we have fallen into a, a, a tradition of hiring where it's almost exclusively women now or uh, gender nonconforming folks because just for this reason where people would would say oh you have a wood shop that's so cool that's for like dads out in the garage kind of thing <laughs> and i was like no it's people who love to make things out of wood like the the women of my shop are super badass and i and other guys that uh, who i know that make things we also love to like sew clothing and bake and do you know do like traditional you know, uh, th things that are old fashioned, uh, female gendered activities. So, you know, I think, I think, I don't know if, if this is sort of a generalized answer to what your question was, but in order to, um, to present a palatable version of masculinity, I think, uh, or any humanity, it's my, my f because I'm aware of my faults, uh, I immediately try to lead with love. I try to bring love and say, yeah. okay, look, uh, <laughs> we, we can chop firewood. I can, I can build a building if, if we need <laughs> me to, but it's because I want us all to prosper and be happy. Everyone is welcome in that building once you yeah, build it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and if anybody here can swing a hammer, by all means, let's, let's yeah. all, all pitch in. Since we're on hammering and woodworking, uh, I have a woodworker friend, Mackenzie Reed, who who started his own shop recently called Revivalist Woodworking, and he has presented me with a three-question woodworking speed round. 
We will expeditiously scratch your woodworking itch, but quickly, therefore not scaring away all the folks who will not understand these questions. Number one, Smart. do you think vintage Japanese hand chisels are worth it or should I stick with a good set of Lie Nielsen? Uh, Lee Nielsen and Lee Nielsen. Uh, I mean, it's not like those are cheap either. Uh, either one as long, just, just make sure you get good steel that will hold its edge. Okay. Number two, what's your favorite project to build from Good Clean Fun, your book? Oh boy. Uh, a canoe paddle is the first one that springs to mind. Nice. Number three, what type of joint do you enjoy making the most? <laughs> I will take that bait and and, <laughs> uh, and say a blunt. <laughs> Perfect. Um, bonus non-woodworking question from him. If you had to pick one person to meet from your book, Gumption, who would it be? Oh boy. Um, gosh, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Eleanor Roosevelt. That's a good one. I just saw something about her maybe a year or two ago. And I was like, how is this woman? Not someone we talk about more just yeah. wild. She's astonishing. Yeah. Um, speaking of books, I, read your most recent where the deer and the antelope play the pastoral observations of one ignorant American who loves to walk outside. And the book itself is also a delight full of potentially um, extemporaneous and unnecessary words, much like the title, but it's wonderful to read. And it is a journey because of that. And it starts by recounting a hiking trip in Glacier National Park with Wilco frontman, Jeff Tweedy and famed columnist, George Saunders, and then stories from the farm of James Rebanks and family who uh, shepherds a farm near Manchester, England. And then finally traveling cross country in an airstream with your wife during COVID. It truly is a journey of a book. I quickly have to ask you, uh, since I'm from Chicago and I've been to Wilco shows and met Jeff Tweedy, have you heard the J.C. Brooks and the Uptown Sound cover of Wilco's I'm Trying to Break Your Heart? I have not. I'm afraid I don't know that that band. Well, it is a small Chicago based, but the cover is absolutely spectacular. And I would as a Wilco diehard, I would highly recommend you, you give it a listen sometime. I will. Thank you. I, uh, I'll I... send it to your uh, rep so that you have it written down. Thank um, you. Let's talk about the beginning of the book because I love it. You guys are in Glacier National Park and Tweety is, of course, exhibiting superhuman feats like snagging glasses about to fly off of a raft or slipping, falling and then getting back up. Another superhuman feat that few humans can pull off. Uh, but in the beginning, you sort of lay out how the great minds have thought about our relationship with nature. And there's this great quote from your favorite, Wendell Berry. It's, uh, and so I go to the woods as I get in under the trees dependably almost at once and by nothing I do things fall into place. I enter an order that does not exist outside in the human spaces. I feel my life take its place among the lives, the trees, the annual plants, the, the animals and birds, the living of all these and the dead that go and have gone to make the life of the earth. I am less important than I thought. The human race is less important than I thought. I rejoice in that my mind loses its urgings, senses its nature and is free. That is so beautiful. And you're so honest in the book and throughout your work about your love of nature, but also man-made comforts. And I just talked to another guest about this recently, struggling to find the balance between not craving one when enjoying the other, or not wondering how you could possibly live in the city when you go to the country and then being in the country and saying, how could I possibly not live in the city? Have you found the secret to reconciling those? Gosh, uh, that, that's a great question. Um, I, uh, no, the short answer is no, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I will ever, I mean, for me specifically, I have this 
crazy life where I just spent two months in England shooting a movie and reading actually a new Wendell Berry book that's coming out this fall called uh, The Need to Be Whole. Uh, and it's incredible. Um, and so I'm, I'm constantly pondering these questions. While I was there, Megan and I went to visit James Rebanks and his family and the four cows that I own in his herd. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm literally living out this question. I'm constantly wrestling with this balance of uh, we, London is our favorite city to be in. Uh, we saw some incredible theater. It's, it's the gr greatest place to see theater, I think. And then we go, you know, uh, enjoy complete farm to table meals with a farming family in the Lake District. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, I think that's the question in front of us as a species is uh, how can we come to reconcile the, the incredible creature comforts that we've developed through technology while uh, being equitable to Mother Nature in the way we use her resources? Uh, because the way we're doing it right now is obviously unsustainable. And, um, you know, as long as the air conditioning is still on, as long as the lights are still on, human tendency is to be like, well, we'll figure it out. But, <laughs> and, and I think until the lights go out and we say, oh, shoot, we really should have stepped up our, re our research a little bit. Uh, right. and then, Where did the lights know, come from, actually? I've never thought about it, right? <laughs> exactly. I yeah. just sent someone my money, and yeah. I, I thought they were being cool and about the, the way. And the water <laughs> and the yeah. stuff I need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's another great quote from Wendell Berry in the book that kind of speaks to that. It says, whether we want and our politicians know it or not, nature is party to all our deals and decisions, and she has more votes, a longer memory, and a sterner sense of justice than we do. I was recently watching the George Carlin documentary, and he has this famous rant about saving the planet, much of which I disagree with. Uh, I think if humans are directly involved in the eradication of species, we should care. And it's not simply a matter of things uh, come and go. Um, but he got one thing right for sure, and that's the planet will be fine. We're <laughs> right. It's not the planet yeah. that's the problem. It's clearly we are. And that's a big part of your ongoing conversation in this book is um, how much we ignore the results of our own actions in pursuit of the things that give us the thing we immediately need and then larger and more broadly money. Um, it's it's very hard to think about those things regularly without a, a great doom. It is. It is for sure. It takes, I think it requires the, uh, the, the, the blithe optimism of, of humans, the, the sort of blissful ignorance that we're capable of in order to to keep a, a smile on some days, but um, but the thing is, all of these issues are are connected. The way we treat each other, the the prejudices that we hold against one another, they're all directly related to the way we disregard Mother Nature and the the ecosystem from which we draw literally sustain our lives. Um, and, and from that, the way that we the, the way that we husband the land, as it were, the way that we that we operate uh, specifically, just look at our relationship with farmers. By and large, we disregard farmers. We're like, who, what, who cares? Like, you mean from like storybooks? You know, <laughs> we, we're so disconnected from who provides our food. 
uh, and not only farmers, but foresters and, and the people who fish the oceans and so forth, we, we are so lazily out of touch with them that that allows us to then disregard each other. You know, it, we've lost all value of, of where our sustenance comes from. And I'm, you know, I'm with my plucky uh, sense of humor, <laughs> trying to, to it works. <laughs> continue reminding us that we should pay attention to those things. And that that's, that's exactly why everybody deserves the same amount of rights and respect. Yeah. You know, in working with the rebanks on their farm, you, you start getting into how small farmers work with nature while big industry factory farmers work despite nature. And you write of the latter, what of quality, if you're willing to degrade these many lives with impunity, the lives of the animals themselves, the workers growing them, the neighbors having to suffer, the voluminous poisons being pumped into the ecosystem and watershed, and the humans consuming your products, then what are you about? Can that even be considered farming? So I'm interested to talk about this because I'm a vegetarian, mainly for my love of animals and mainly for my disgust in how they're treated in big factories and plants. But I do believe and understand the circle of life and the cycle of life and carnivorous animals surviving by preying on other animals. And I very much respect your beliefs about meat and farming done right. But I wonder if you actually believe that's possible in America or if sometimes the extremes of requesting that people be more plant-based or try more often to eat plants will then cause that whole thing of but the money to have to reconsider their pursuit of money and whether that comes more from plant-based things as people change their behaviors um that's a great question uh i uh and one of the people who, from whom i learn about this subject is uh, a woman named diana rogers uh, i had narrated a, a documentary for her called sacred cow and she has a book by the same title sacred cow with uh she and with a writing partner whose name i believe is rob wolf and it's all about all of the incredible misinformation uh most of it coming from corporate food companies um whether it's the plant-based or the meat-based folks everybody is trying to sell us industrial products and mm -hmm. so I mean, I think my first answer uh, to your question is it doesn't matter if our foods are plant-based or, or meat-based, we're being sold a lot of processed garbage. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's a complete misconception to imagine that you can eat a meatless diet without killing part of nature. Any, any farming involves the death of a lot of organisms and so forth and so on. The so for me to answer your question, like, is it possible, you know, to reach a point where like all farming is holistic and mm -hmm. and and perfectly done? I mean, is it you know, it, it's it's inseparable from the question: Is it possible for we humans to live on this planet without right. without wasting any of of her precious right? I think resources. I think the good place handled that perfectly when they happened upon the man who tried not to even kill an ant <laughs> when walking and realized that ultimately our existence will result in in the death of other things. Yeah, it is, and it's you know, I mean, just to like illustrate a tiny example, I, I just would say I don't know, like if if McDonald's exists can we have you know uh a, a food system that is that is nothing but decent and it doesn't seem like those things can ever be reconciled you can't mass like i say in in my book the 
the terms uh, I'm talking about meat packing plants and I, and I say like the terms meat and industry should never be or, or factory like mm-hmm. should never be in the same sentence. So as long as we're industrially uh, pr- trying to provide food on a, on a corporate level, the, the whole point of that is not to to provide sustenance or health to the consumers or to the people eating. And that's so it begs the question, what is food for? It's to give us health and life. And it, again, it should have it should be delivered, it should be created and delivered and received with love. But it's become in a, a massive percentage of the food that is available to most of us is not created with love. It's created with a profit in mind. And so it's made less good so that the people can make more of a profit. And that's what that's what got me started on this whole like that's what I don't think I'll ever shake is like, you guys, look at <laughs> look at what we're feeding ourselves and our families. Um yeah. and, and we don't it doesn't have to be that way. So you know the, I I I think like with all human uh, human efforts, and and again through uh, my collaboration with Mike Schur, I the my my book Gumption I dedicated to Mike and said thank you for showing me how funny we can be while saying I love you, hmm. and and I mean he, he just taught you know up until then I was like oh man I really would love to work on good material with good people. And that's still the case, but Mike has taken it to another level where I, even if I'm making a, a comedy on a, on a network, you know, sitcom, um, it can still have an altruistic bent. And I, and so, and, and it's funny, Mike sure wrote a thesis paper, either senior year of high school or in college at Harvard about Wendell Berry. No uh, way. That's yeah, crazy. Like yeah. it all. And, and reading both of your books, I'm not at all surprised that there was a friendship that's that or, or that he saw in you when he cast something beyond just a, an acting connection. Well, I, just like just like my wife accepting me into her life and, and Mike accepting me into his showbiz family. Uh, I just nod and keep my mouth shut and <laughs> make sure I do the dishes whenever I can. <laughs> well, the good news is, is uh, he did write that book, How to Be Perfect. So now we don't have to ask any more of the the difficult questions we ask ourselves on the planet. He solved it all for us. <laughs> it's true. I mean, if anything, I, I just stay off of trolleys. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. Then you avoid having to make the big decisions. <laughs> You have so much work and content that you create uh, by yourself. And with Megan, you had that great podcast that kept a lot of people in, entertained when we most needed it. But now you have a sub stack that's relatively new and you sell it as such. If you like to hear slow talking or watching a medium looking white guy in his 50s, try to find his figurative ass with both hands, then this might just be the subscription for you. I repeat, it will be flawed. It's called Donkey Thoughts. I believe that is you summarizing uh, the the tough work you're putting in there. Um, I mean, you talk about a lot of stuff, faith outside of organized religion, opening a bottle of wine without a corkscrew, finding a career that's satisfying, scotch eggs, actual canoes, douche canoes. Uh, there's a lot there. And I wonder why you decided that uh, Substack writer and podcaster was uh, the best way to spend what time you have now. 
that is a great question. Uh, I, uh, you, this has been a litany of great questions. <laughs> I was right <laughs> to agree, to agree to this. Um, I honestly, uh, I have the great good fortune of having this three-way bromance with Jeff Tweedy and George Saunders, uh, which you cited earlier. And we were just on, we, we just had a zoom last night, which was so wonderful because to this day, I just still don't understand, uh, without it's not imposter syndrome. I'm younger than them and stupider than them. <laughs> and so I was actually, I called the zoom cause I needed their advice about, uh, a professional decision and and they're so smart and and they're like beautiful compassionate wizards and i they and the guidance that they gave me was so profound and true um and and so frankly they were starting to do substacks and uh we were talking about it and i was talking to uh a a guy uh, at Substack named Dan Stone, who's one, who's, who's a great creative head. He's responsible for a lot of, uh, of, of Substack's success. And, and honestly, I, I said, I, yeah, I don't think it's not my thing. Uh, this or that, the way they're going to do theirs. Um, and, and he just brought up the idea of doing a Q and a, and, uh, there's a couple of things that my my life which is so fun and varied uh and and challenging that one of the things that i that i would lament is that i never have time as as is the case with so many people to do something like practice my guitar I, mm -hmm. or 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 i keep i keep starting to learn a song on piano and i haven't finished yet um and and Another thing, since I write books, uh, I would like to write a little bit every day. You know, I, I, I wish you read so you, you hear that so much about like just write every day and yeah. so forth and so on. And the only way I can do things like that is to give myself a professional deadline yeah. to make <laughs> to make myself responsible to others. And so, because it's a, it's a total pain in the ass to add <laughs> twice a week, which are invariably very busy weeks. And, and so it's like, holy cow, it's Thursday or, or it's Sunday again, but it's real. I really enjoy it. It's really gratifying. And it's the kind of thing that I find I'm it's, it, you know, the people that I follow on Substack that are prolific writers and thinkers they're cranking out essays every day and, and I don't even have time to read them, let alone, <laughs> I'm like, how, how can you possibly do this? Uh, the thing that I enjoy is that I can bring a lightweight conversational tone where it's just kind of like a conversation yeah. with, with the people that want to want to weigh in on it with me. And I really have enjoyed it so far. It keeps me nimble. It keeps me thinking, um, and I do, I, I really don't have a super high opinion of it. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful to the, you know, to the handful of people that seem to be enjoying it so far. It is lighthearted most of the time, but you impart some very deep and thoughtful wisdom in it. And that's that sweet spot that, that you're great at. So it's nice to see it uh, exercised on a quicker and 
immediate response to some of these people that are asking you for, you know, important, important things. I don't know how you have time because I saw you're making Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2, and I imagine you'll be taking over the Tom Cruise role. That seems like a hefty lift. Uh, I can't say a lot about those particular negotiations. Uh, there is some heavy lifting going on. Uh, no, I, I, um, thankfully, I've got a pretty uh, nug a nifty nugget of a supporting role, for which I'm so grateful because the the way they make those films. <laughs> is i mean it's indescribable uh as someone who's been in the business for some decades now there's a reason that they're the best at what they do and and they're like the the top of the genre uh it's so you know getting to work with them for some weeks uh has been just bonkers uh i never <laughs> i never imagined that you know that i would do scenes uh at that at that of that caliber um yeah. It's just like Steppenwolf. <laughs> it's it's not. It's uh, <laughs> it's really not. Uh, <laughs> but it's. I mean, it's it's fascinating because I come from, like I could go. I can go. I, I feel comfortable that I can go do theater now any anywhere. Like I, mm -hmm. I've become a, a competent. You know, if they need a plumber, <laughs> I'm your man. Um, but to to work in like a a high a big budget sort of action franchise was just a whole new world. Yeah. The the way they meticulously like every shot is every frame is a masterpiece. Um and it's it's really fun to see how that particular sausage is made. Well we're out of time but you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your current career is canceled. All of them, all the things. What job do you do instead? So I can do nothing that I do now? <laughs> yes. Uh, holy cow. Um, nursing. Nursing, just like your mom. I like yeah. it. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Holy cow. Uh, er, uh meeting tom waits for the first time <laughs> number three you can be the best in the world at one thing for one day what is it what is it achieving world peace perfect love that number four what current celebrity from anything music politics tv sports would you most like to be your best friend that isn't already currently your best friend <laughs> <laughs> um i don't get i don't get out much <laughs> uh uh shohei otani okay good one Good one. For some reason, I imagine you have you have you ever hung out with Stephen Colbert? I feel like you guys would be an interesting. Yes, Stephen horned his way into <laughs> the three-way bromance, and okay, we. Okay, good, good. I imagined that in my head. I just I, respect you both a lot, and. I love and admire Stephen. He's he's a a true gentleman. Uh, number five. What's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Pet peeve. Um. The, the lack of nuance in modern uh, cancel culture. Very meaningful, but I'll give it to you. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? 
<laughs> uh, I'm hard to embarrass. Um, <laughs> I imagine. It's the most embarrassed I've ever been. Um, when, when I, ah, I, I, the first guest star job I had in LA uh, was on a show called Profiler, which was not good. And, <laughs> and I had a party to watch the episode. And that's, and that's when I realized you shouldn't have a party <laughs> with your friends to watch things that you don't know the quality of. It was mm -hmm. po powerfully embarrassing. Uh, my first role when I moved to LA, when I tried to do comedy was in an ESPYs ad that I was cut out of, but was not informed that. So I told everyone I know to keep watching because there's a bunch of different versions, none of which I was in. So I also learned, just make sure that uh, you made that final cut before you tell anyone to start watching. It's a powerful lesson. <laughs> yes. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, my, uh, my, my, I would like to improve my selflessness. It's mm, a good one. Uh, number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Uh, Tenacious D. Yes. Oh, that'd be fun. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Biggest failure. <laughs> this is... This is hard. these are heavy questions to <laughs> to have in a speed round. Biggest failure, um, uh, not uh, not discovering the Scotch egg until I was in my forties. Fair, very fair. Uh, number ten. Finally, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, <laughs> three words to describe me. Uh, Decent, um, hardworking, uh, and uh, fragrant. <laughs> Perfect. The final bonus question, who should I have on this podcast that would be an amazing person to talk to from any walk of life or industry? Uh, well, George Saunders is, mm. is who springs to mind. He, um, he, is you know held to be kind of our one of or our top short story writers in america today and uh he's from the south side of chicago and and he just sounds like a normal guy like he's so unassuming <laughs> and so friendly that if you I, I was a huge fan of his stuff before I met him. And I was like, this, are you sure you're him? <laughs> because <laughs> he's, he's so brilliant. Um, and, and, you know, Jeff, uh, as a rock star gets a lot more play. And so I usually goose George whenever I can, because he's, he is beautiful to talk to. I dig it. Uh, you've been beautiful to talk to. Thank you so much. I know you're so busy. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I, I've, really truly admire all your work beyond just uh hey you made me laugh so it's very valuable well i really appreciate it thanks for your thoughtful questions and uh i i hope uh we'll, i'll get to see you again for the next one that's what she said <laughs> oh yeah one more thing this is a place for rants raves everything in between i'll complain i'll tell you a story i'll tell you what to read or listen to or watch and this week it's Wendell Berry. Nick spends a lot of time online in his books, his Substack, 
everywhere pretty much, talking about Wendell Berry. And there just happens to be a fairly recent profile of him in The New Yorker, February of this year to be exact, entitled Wendell Berry's Advice for a Cataclysmic Age. Sixty years after renouncing modernity, the writer is still contemplating a better way forward. It's by Dorothy Wickenden, who visited Barry at his log cabin in Kentucky, just south of the Ohio border. Here's a tiny bit from the story. From this sliver of vanishing America, Barry cultivates the unfashionable virtues of neighborliness and compassion. He divides his time between writing and farm work, continuing his vocation of championing sustainable agriculture in a country fueled by industrial behemoths, while striving to ensure that rural Americans, a mocked, despised, and ever-dwindling minority, do not perish altogether. Whenever the country struggles with a new man-made emergency, Barry is rediscovered. A Twitter feed called At Wendell Daily recently circulated one of his maxims. Quote, rats and roaches live by competition under the law of supply and demand. It is the privilege of human beings to live under the laws of justice and mercy. The story in The New Yorker is worth a read, and it also promotes a new book by Wendell Berry, which is out this October, called The Need to Be Whole, Patriotism and the History of Prejudice. This is from the book summary. Wendell Berry has never been afraid to speak up for the dispossessed. The Need to Be Whole continues the work he began in The Hidden Wound in 1970 and The Unsettling of America in 1977, demanding a careful exploration of this hard, shared truth. The wealth of the mighty few governing this nation has been built on the unpaid labor of others. Without historical understanding of this practice of dispossession, the displacement of Native peoples, the destruction of both the land and land-based communities, ongoing racial division, we are doomed to continue industrialism's assault on both the natural world and every sacred American ideal. Barry writes, quote, To deal with so great a problem, the best idea may not be to go ahead in our present state of unhealth to more disease and more product development. It may be that our proper first resort should be to history, to see if the truth we need to pursue might be behind us where we have ceased to look. If there is hope for us, this is it, that we honestly face our past and move into a future guided by the natural laws of affection. This book furthers Mr. Barry's part in what is surely our country's most vital conversation. Sure sounds like a book worth reading to me. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you have guest suggestions, questions, or more, and you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give me a nice review. Maybe you'll show up on the pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. (laughs) 